Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Get ready to hear the truth about America on a show that's not immune to the facts with your host, Dan Bongino. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. It's a special podcast we put together for you to enjoy on the weekends. It features some of the best interviews we did in the radio show during the week. If you'd like to listen to the radio show, you can go to Bongino.com, click on Station Finder, find out where the local station near you is. With cyber attacks on the rise, protecting your data security is more important than ever. So why is Congress considering a law that puts your data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill shifts billions in consumer spending to less secure payment networks, all so that corporate megastores can make bigger profits. Don't let Durbin Marshall steal your data. Visit handsoffmyrewards.com security and tell your senators to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Paid for by Electronic Payments Coalition. First up today in the interview show, we talked with former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, how things were different when he was running the House of Representatives and Bill Clinton was in charge. It was a different time. We talked about his new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, and he has an amazing, amazing plan to take back the House. I really enjoyed this interview. Check this out. Honored to welcome to the show former Speaker of the House and a great Republican, Mr. Newt Gingrich. Mr. Speaker, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm delighted. I, I love watching you on uh, Fox, and I'm delighted to have a chance to be on your show. Well, thank you. You have a new book out we're going to get to called Defeating Big Government Socialism, certainly a topic uh, I'm interested in. I want to get to that. Just a couple questions uh, for you. I, I mean, nobody's studied the political scene in greater detail than you and lived it. Uh, about the current political scene now. This trip uh, Joe Biden took our president over to Saudi Arabia, Mr. Speaker, was a total uh, disaster. I mean, a flop on every front. And I'd make the case to you, I'd love to hear your opinion, that it was actually counterproductive. He was better off doing nothing at all. The Iranians, after he came back, are now claiming they have the material to make a bomb. Gas and oil prices are still going up. The Saudis have said, we're going to leave it up to OPEC, basically kissing the butt of of the Russians. Um, We have Joe Biden calling one of the Saudi ministers a liar about uh, claiming he brought up Khashoggi. I mean, this was just not only not good, but it was just a genuinely bad experience for the United States. Oh, I think that's right. I think that, first of all, the very idea that if you have a gas and oil problem, instead of going to Texas or North Dakota or western Pennsylvania, you go to Saudi Arabia should tell you everything you need to know. Second, they have followed consistently John Kerry's strategy when he was Secretary of State of selling out to the Iranians. The Iranians know it. They know how weak Biden is, uh, and they are ruthlessly taking advantage of it. And third, the Saudis just have to regard him with contempt. This is a guy who said he was going to make them a pariah state and then suddenly discovered that they actually have oil. Uh, I mean, you have to wonder, <laughs> you know, every once in a while you're reminded that Joe, Joe Biden defines the word shallow. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Newt Gingrich, author of the book out now. Pick it up, please. Defeating Big Government Socialism. On that topic, it's something that's 
fascinated me forever, Mr. Speaker. Um, this seems to be the idea that will never die. Uh, uh, it's a tragically serious topic, but sometimes I joke with the audience that socialism has a 100% success record of failure. It has magically managed to fail every single time it's been tried. And yet it continues to you know, pop up and return in academic circles and make its way into the political circles. Is this just show the power of the media control over the American populace to, to, to isolate and gaslight people from the truth about this this deadly this deadly political ideology? I use that word deliberately. No, I, th- I think it goes back to uh, the academic class, and here I would include the news media who are part of it, uh, and the fact that socialism is the one philosophy that gives them an excuse to have power over everybody else. Uh, they deeply resent the wealthy. They resent the successful. Uh, and this is their chance to have power. And so uh, it, it keeps bouncing back because every generation, along come a bunch of professors and reporters and others uh, who would love to have power over your life, your life and uh, big government socialism is the excuse for them to have that power. So it's a vehicle more than anything. But you having lived through the Republican revolution when you took back Congress and having had to work with Bill Clinton, you know, you've seen the opposite approach with him, a guy who in the first term obviously tried the radical leftist nonsense. Again, you lived through it. You were there on the ground in the trenches. He gets crushed in the midterms. And then you, you and and your, and the Republicans in the, in in Congress pull him back and he leaves office with 60% approval. So, Right. Is there a possibility for sanity in the future in the Democrat Party? I mean, you did it. You pulled them over to the same side. Well, I mean, first of all, we split the Democratic Party. I mean, part of the reason Hillary had trouble against Obama in 2008 was that the left hated her. And they didn't hate her because of Lewinsky. They hated her because Bill sold out. And he was clear about it. I mean, I still remember being the Speaker of the House, as you know, hosting the President of the United States for the State of the Union in 1996. And Clinton walks in and he gets up there and he says, the era of big government is over. Well, of course, <laughs> I had to stand up and applaud me. What are you, you going to do? Um, but, and what happened was, and, and this, there are two big differences, other, other than the fact that, that Bill Clinton is extraordinarily smart. Uh, I would argue he's smarter than Barack Obama uh, oh. and, and more practical. And he's out. 20 times smarter than Joe Biden. Um, But in addition, Clinton was from Arkansas. He'd been governor of a state dealing with a conservative state legislature. He understood the game. He had lost in 1980. He never wanted to lose again. He was very clear about this. And so when we won in 94, and then he had run as a centrist in 92. Remember, he, he was for ending welfare as we know it. Uh, right. He was for abortions being uh, safe, rare, etc. I mean, he had all the right language down. It, then he comes in, and in 93, 94, the congressional Democrats, much like the current team, talk him into going to the left. The country repudiates it. And in June of 1995, Clinton's having a big meeting in the White House, and, and he says to his staff with great anger, if I do what you want, I will be defeated next year. And I am not going to do that. I'm going to work with Newt, and we're going to get things done, and I'll get reelected. 
And, of course, that's what happened. I mean, we, we, you know, the only four consecutive balanced budgets of your lifetime, Clinton and I did. Uh, welfare reform, the biggest conservative social reform of your lifetime. Clinton and I did that. I mean, we found a formula for working with each other. We spent 35 days together in the cabinet room writing the balanced budget. I mean, it was a knockdown, drag out every day. But we both understood that the country was bigger than us and that we had an obligation to America. And the current generation has none of that. We we were the last stand of the World War II. You know, you could argue, I guess, that George W. Bush followed that. Uh, but then you got people who have no sense of uh, holding together in a dangerous world, no sense of why patriotism matters, uh, no sense of reaching beyond their own ego or their own ideology. And it's a very, very different environment. We're talking to Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House and author of the book Out Now, Defeating Big Government Socialism. Please check it out. Mr. Speaker, uh, th- that worries me. Number one, I'm, I'm fascinated by that era of our political history. I talk about it all the time on the show. My producer can vouch for me. The Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich era fascinates me. So but that speech is given by Democrats, Democrats, the era of big government is over. You would be thrown out of the party, tarred and feathered for even daring to tweet that these days. But what happened after two terms of losing to Ronald Reagan and then losing to George H.W. Bush is you had the DLC, this Democrat Leadership Council, comes in and says, listen, this isn't a viable you know, business plan for our party moving forward. And they try to center the party more. Bill Clinton uh, personifies that in his second term working with you. I'm not sure that's possible anymore. I think no, with the not. Twitter outrage machine, I don't, I don't think that's even possible. Well, it's not possible. You saw the beginning of the breakdown with Al Gore. Uh, Gore, who, after, after all, had been Clinton's vice president, knew what Clinton was doing. And by the way, Tony Blair essentially follows Clinton's pattern and reorganizes the Labor Party in Great Britain. And he has the same end result. The left in Great Britain hates Tony Blair just as the left in America hates Bill Clinton. And the reason is, and this is part of why I wrote uh, Defeating Big Government Socialism, this is a value system. And these guys were were heretics. They were violating the core value system of the left. And and I think that's why you get the the kind of uh, things happening that you you saw. And uh, it's, it's very, very fascinating to me that, you know, the New York Times has become Pravda, and the Washington Post has become his vestia. And if you see the media as the active offensive wing of their team, then you're never confused by what's going on. Yeah. We're talking to Newt Gingrich, author of the book, Defeating Big Government Socialism. Mr. Speaker, tell us about the book. Obviously, as I said, opening up in this interview with you, this is a persistent problem. This generational battle with this deadly form of organization of government, socialism, and it is deadly. It it accumulates body bags quicker than anything in human history. So what is the key to defeating big government socialism? Is it reorganizing uh, uh, on the activism side? Is it is more pronounced voices in conservative media? What is the key? Well, I think it's it's connecting performance to policy. You know, Reagan has said at one point it wasn't what liberals didn't know that scared him was what they knew that wasn't true. And that's what you're up against. You're up against a belief system. So it's very important, not just that we win, but that we win based on both performance and policy. Uh, And I'll give you an example. Uh, I think liberals cannot handle 
violence, whether it's criminals, terrorists, or foreign governments, because they all saw The Lion King and thought it was a documentary. And they think that lions and zebras sing and dance together. And we try to convince them that, in fact, in the real world, lions eat zebras. And they say, oh, no, that can't be true. I saw the movie. Uh, And the result is they follow policies that are, I, I don't think they're right or left. I think they're crazy. I mean, you release murderers back on the street, guess what? You're going to have a lot right, more crime. Right. You, 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 you encourage people to cross the border, give them a tax-paid cell phone, fly them anywhere in America they want to go, and then you wonder why more people show up. Well, you know, what did you think was going to happen? And you just go through layer after layer of how sick their system is. And the key is to tie policy to performance. It's not just the performance itself, but it's the policy behind the performance. Yeah, I, I put, putting meat on the bone again, Mr. Speaker. Last question, I'll let you go. Again, we're talking to Newt Gingrich, Defeating Big Government Socialism is the book. I, I, that's, that's great to say, and believe me, I appreciate the sentiment. I try to do it on this show and my Fox show all the time. But how exactly? Is it repetition? Is it just uh, using our megaphones and our channels to highlight it more and uh, are we just, is the rhetoric poor? Are we just doing a bad job at it? No, no, no. We are doing a bad job on it because we don't connect the two. If, if, you, if you always connect policy to performance, you begin to change things. And it's pretty mm. simple. Uh, you, yeah. you go stand next to a gas station and say, had enough. This is, <laughs> a, this is a result of bad yeah. policies. Now, the yeah. person who's the model for all this is Margaret Thatcher, who in 1975, when she became opposition leader, said publicly she was going to destroy socialism as an alternative, and she did. No left-wing labor leader has won the prime ministership in 40 years. And I think we have a chance to do the same here. Not just beat a Joe Biden or a Kamala Harris, but beat the entire set of ideas they represent, which are destructive ideas which cannot possibly work. Okay, now I need the book. Can you have your people send me a book? <laughs> I need, sure. I'll buy it. You'll get I'm it. kidding, Mr. Yeah. Fair, I can afford, I'm messing with you. I'm going to go to my website. I'm going to get it now. We're talking to Newt Gingrich. He's the author of Defeating Big Government Socialism. You, I'm not kidding. You piqued my interest. Now I'm, I'm going to read this thing. Mr. Speaker, I know you're busy. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Great. Enjoy talking to you. Oh, thanks a lot. Likewise. I have a Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Uh, listen, folks, he... He's not kidding. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. He lived there, lived this entire experience in the trenches with Bill Clinton. Go back and look at that era and that Democrat Party compared to what we're living with now. So I'm going to pick that up. Defeating big government socialism. There you go. You like that, Jim? Hey, can you send me a go? <laughs> I'm kidding, folks. I'll pick one up. That was former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. Up next, we talk with one of my favorite representatives in Congress, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. If you're looking for a firearm that's easy to transport, you got to check out the U.S. Survival Rifle from Henry Repeating Arms. It's a portable rifle you can put together and take apart in a few minutes. And then when you're not using it, you can store the parts in the little case it comes in. It's so small, it can be stored anywhere, in a go bag, anywhere. It's light enough to carry everywhere. Comes in black and two different camo patterns. You can pick one up for three to $400, depending on the finish. You can watch a few videos at henryusa.com slash survival. And while you're there, be sure to order their free catalog. Henry makes more than 200 rifles, shotguns, and revolvers in the role made in America, backed by a lifetime satisfaction guarantee and the best customer service in the business. Go to their website, 
It's henryusa.com and be sure to order a free catalog. They'll send it with free decals on a list of dealers in your area. That's henryusa.com for a free catalog and decals and to see the Henry U.S. Survival Rifle. Here's Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert on what's going on in Congress behind the scenes, how the conservative movement's doing in Congress, and learned about, a little bit about her life as she recounted in her book, My American Life. It's a really great story. Check it out. Listen, let's just be honest. Nobody does it better than the Babylon Bee. Nobody. Nobody does satire better. Jim, did you see this headline? Babylon Bee, July 18th. Shocking photo emerges. Shows Hunter Biden fully clothed and not smoking crack. <laughs> you got to see the picture. Oh, my gosh. Seth over there. I don't know who you hired to write these headlines, but they're hilarious. All right, let me not waste any more time. Really excited about this interview. Welcoming to the show, Congresswoman, and definitely not a rhino, a fighter for the conservative cause, Lauren Boebert. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. Dan, it's so great to be on here. And I, I saw that meme earlier, too, from the Babylon Bee. It was fantastic. That's I, I don't know I've who is that. writing their headlines, but give them a raise. Instantly, they deserve the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. They're just or at fantastic. least give them their Twitter back. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they deserve it. I I got a lot of smiles at it. But Jim keeps me updated during the show. He loves to be. So you have a book out. It's called My yeah. American Life. I I want to get to that. I'm going to discuss the book. What's in the book? Why you wrote it? But if you wouldn't mind, I just want to um kind of uh, probe your mind here about a couple of things. You ran. You won. I ran for office. Uh, I didn't win. So there's something you did right. Um, that I didn't do. And there are a couple of primaries going on today uh, in Maryland that are important. And I opened up my show today talking about the importance of, I get it, we've got to win races with good candidates. But Congresswoman, I think the second most important question is the candidate who focus groups tell you can win. The most important question is Mm. who actually believes in our ideas? Uh, I mean, we've got this growing class of rhinos in D.C. You're living with them every day, a lot of them up on Capitol Mm -hmm. Hill that are destroying the brand of our party and giving a watered-down version of what conservatism actually is. Yes, and that's exactly who our representative was in my district, and that's why I stepped up to run. And so I had to actually educate the voters on why positions were bad, because most people did believe that our representative, our congressman, was a conservative, uh, that he voted right, that he was just quiet and sweet and didn't and didn't do much to rock the boat. But he voted right. And I had to bring his voting record to them and show them these are not our policies. Voting for amnesty is not our policies. It's, it's snuck in a bill. It, it's tucked away in there. But here it is. It, 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 and it's his vote. So I, I spent a lot of time um, going throughout my district and meeting with people one on one, a lot of opposition in the way I, I was up against the establishment. I was up against the GOP. But I brought out new voters also um, in my primary. Um, the voters are rated from zero to four. Uh, if you voted uh, for the four uh, previous oh, elections, then you're a four. And if you haven't, then you're a zero. And I brought out the zeros and the ones. People who don't vote. I reached out to those forgotten voters like President Trump did. Uh, but, but Dan, you're right. We have to get the right people up here. I, I am so tired of voting Democrat light. The only way, I don't vote that way, but Republicans vote that way. Some Republicans vote that way. Uh, but yeah, the only way we lose yeah. the midterm is if we start acting like Democrats. Um, making excuses, passing uh, infrastructure bills for the Democrats, where only 9% of $1.9 trillion goes to anything infrastructure related. That 
that vote frustrated me so bad, Dan, as it did you. Yeah. We, we knew that they were going to yeah. bring the $5 trillion Build Back Better with it. And, and still, 13 Republicans said, Democrats, you can't pass this on your own, but we'll pass it for you. Democrats yeah, didn't pass a kidney stone at that time. Yeah, I know. And I, because we have a rule on this show that we don't allow squishes, uh, Jim and, and Mike and I were very careful to compile the list and let everybody know who those people were. And one of them I actually liked very much personally, but I'm not here to make friends. You want to make friends? Get a freaking dog, okay? That's not this show. We don't do that. This show's about advancing conservatism. You want a friend? Go get a kitten or whatever. You can play furry time. That's not what we do here. We're not screwing around, okay? Mm-hmm. We're here to preserve this constitutional republic. Yeah, we have a country mm-hmm. to save. You're damn right. Give us, you just said a couple of things I want to highlight. You just, I swear, it's like you listen to this show. You said about voter scores and stuff. <laughs> I want to get to that, but give us the inside scoop. You're up there on Capitol Hill. Are the, the squishes and the establishment phonies, are they freaking out about 2022? And, and I say that because this is going to be, I think, a historic, uh, historically good election for us. But the problem for the establishment GOP, as you well know, being up there, is if now there's some play because we're the majority party, the Republicans, after 2022, and yet the Freedom Caucus, people like you who vote conservative, grows, people like you and like-minded Congresswoman Boebert can all of a sudden dictate the path of the Republican Party going forward. Is that freaking them out a little bit? I, I think they know that, and that's why they are getting involved in primaries um, all over uh, the nation, because the Freedom Caucus is getting involved um, through the House Freedom uh, Fund and other members are getting involved in these primaries, making sure we have true conservative uh, people who will actually read the Constitution, will debate the Constitution with us, look at the constitutionality of everything that we are doing up here. And uh, it's it's more often than not, um, the establishment endorses the other candidate, uh, opposite of what the Freedom Caucus members uh, are, are endorsing. And uh, so they do know that we will have influence and we will be able um, to, to direct a lot of what this conference does if those numbers land correctly and we get the right amount of people up here. Uh, so every single one of us, I, I truly believe we came up here with the mission, the squishes included, with the mission to actually fix problems and say, you know, I, I don't like the way things are going up there. I can make it better. Uh, but then you get here, and then the people who have already been here say, well, this is how we do it here. So just go along with it and do it this way. Well, Dan, I didn't like the way things were being run in Washington, D.C. That's why I came here. So I'm certainly not going to come here and say, yeah, tell me everything you've been doing, and I'll continue doing that. No way. I'm here to do something completely different, shake it up, and actually take a stand for our country. You think that's what made you a target early on? I mean, they've been relentless in their assault on mm-hmm. you. It's outrageous. Like Every single word you say where you put a comma and a period gets parsed. Yeah. I mean, you're like public enemy number one up there. You think that's the reason why you don't just play the company card? Yeah, uh, so it's because I'm, I'm speaking truth loudly and boldly. I, I run my mouth and I give God glory. Uh, and the, the Democrats especially um, hate that. Uh, they, they say that they're the party of women, they're the party of minorities, and uh, I should be one of them. Uh, but I, I learned that there was a different way. In fact, in my book, My American Life, I talk about being raised as a Democrat. 
My mom believed those lies, that their policies are how you advance in life, that how you sustain in life and take care of your children. But really, it puts you in a cycle of poverty. And I learned at 15 years old, when I started working at McDonald's, that uh, with my first paycheck that I received, first, I, I didn't like FICA. Uh, because he was taking all my money and <laughs> I'm still trying yeah. to figure out exactly who he is and where that's going. And you- um, <laughs> but also um, I, I learned that I could do a better job taking care of myself than government did. So with, with yeah. my upbringing, I should be a Democrat. I should be one of them. And they hate that I'm not. They hate that I was able to break free of that cycle and get out of it and actually be able to provide for myself and my family and create opportunities for other people signing the fronts of, of, of paychecks. Uh, and, you know, it is interesting that they, they go over the uh, they, they try to dumb me down as much as they can. Hey, I came out swinging saying I got a GED. So I, I'm not an Ivy League scholar, uh, but, you know, they, they yeah, still try but, to. But you didn't um, fall. But, but I want to note. You didn't fall for the pee-pee tape hoax. So uh, who's really the idiot in the room, you know? And by the way, liberals are, are busy uh, on their search engine right now searching FICA. They have the, they're, they're, they're searching F-I-I-K-A going, who's FICA? Ah! They're doing that right now. So really, who's the idiot? We're talking to Congresswoman yes. Lauren Boebert, author of a new book, My American Life. So, so tell me about the book. What really inspired you to write it? Is it is it the story? Is it political lessons? Is it all the above? Do you tell the story of your campaign? Because your campaign, mm-hmm. you know, you you caused a lot of trouble for the establishment. They were like, "Oh my gosh, right. he had this campaign ad with a gun on," and they say, "Oh my gosh, a gun! That's the craziest yes. thing I've ever seen." I remember all the controversy over that. Yes. Tell us about the book. Yes, yeah, so that that's absolutely in there. My campaign is in there. My my childhood, my upbringing. Um, just, just how, um, really, uh, how, how normal my, my upbringing was, but also there, there was a lot of experience in there. Um, uh, there was a lot of abuse. There was alcohol abuse and drug abuse uh, by family members and physical abuse and, uh, you know, standing in line for bread and government cheese. And then, you know, realizing later in life, I, I refuse to be a victim. I refuse to look at those circumstances and make excuses of why I can't be better than the the experiences I had as a child. So um, all of that, meeting my husband, uh, we have four boys together, and uh, I talk about them, and uh, some of them made wild entrances into the world. I delivered one of my sons in the front of my Ford uh, pickup truck on the way to the hospital. Wow. So we, we share impressive. all about this stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, not there intentional, but, yeah, it, it, it happened. Yeah, so he, I'm he, pretty he, sure. He in a hurry. Did you have an yeah. F-150? That, that was an F two fifty, so we were, we were in a diesel okay. going about hundred miles an hour to the. <laughs> so yes, wow. it, it was the, the, I, that's so, that's in the book. Um, that's quite a story the there. Book. Yes, yes. Oh my God. But uh, but of course we talk about campaigning. Um, I touch on a couple of little policy ideas that I had when I was running. Um, you know, I, I think that. Some of this stuff, um, D.C. life moves so quickly. Um, some, some of this stuff is even a little outdated. I got bigger and better ideas already, and you know, and I can't wait for book number two um, to come out, and, and especially uh, the next Congress, so we can start putting these legislative ideas out uh, and in front and, and making sure that, that we do things to secure our nation, uh, to secure our southern border, and, and fix this energy crisis that Biden created, uh, Beijing, Biden, he's outsourcing everything. Um, But uh, this this is all in the book, My American Life. And and Dan, you know this, uh, it is so difficult for a conservative 
to get a book contract right now, to actually have publishers come in and, and who want to work um, with a conservative and publish their book and promote yeah, their book. I know. And, and so I, I think it's important for people to get this, um, to order this today, um, to, to make a, a loud stance and saying, this is what we want. We are consumers. We want conservative messaging. We want to hear the truth. This is the material that we want to see printed. And that will ring loud for these other publishers who are refusing to work with conservatives. Yeah, that's why I I don't know if you know this, but I I own a book publishing company, too. I publish Miranda Devine's book, Kaylee's book. I mean, that's why I I didn't do it as a money. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you can. Hey, listen, you know my number. Just text me. I'm happy to publish your next book. But that's why I did it, because I, you know, wasn't certainly was about the wasn't about the money. I mean, I'm glad the books made money, but it was to create. You can't talk about a parallel economy. You have to do it. Action matters. You know, talk Mm -hmm. is cheap. Right. I I wanted to hit on something. We're talking to Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. I got about two and a half minutes left here. Uh, My American Life is her new book. You mentioned something before running that people have voter scores. There are zeros and fours. And zeros are Mm -hmm. people who generally don't vote, but are registered fours are people who wouldn't. It takes a nuclear war to keep them away from an election. You said something important because I opened the show talking about this today. That's why I said it's like you listen to the show. That's the importance of voting. Yes, your vote is probably not going to change any election. I'm not going to lie to people. It matters, but it's not going to change any one election. That's rare. But people know you voted. They get your yes. voter score that you, you want yes. Congresswoman Boebert knocking on your door. She wants to hear what you said. They're not going to knock on your door if you're a zero. They're going to knock on the That's ones right. or twos. It's nice to get the zero, but just tell them this is mm-hmm. real. I'm not making this stuff up. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, most candidates will actually go to the threes and fours only uh, because that's a really great in, a return investment on, on their resources, on their time, because this is someone who's committed to vote. So they're going to go and, and hear from them. They're going to sit and have meetings with them. This is a voter. This is who I want to mail my content to. I know that they're going to read it and make an informed decision. Yes. Um, so I, I actually, in office, seeing that I was uh, elected primarily by zeros and ones, these brand new voters, um, first time Trump voters and uh, and then first time voters uh, or first time in a long time. I, I actually reduced mine. So I, I do send out information to the ones and twos as well, because I, I don't want that's them to lose interest. I want them to that's be impressive. engaged. That means that means they showed up specifically for you, yes. that they don't vote yes. every cycle. And you did something special. I want to get one more plug in for your book before the computer cuts us off. We're talking to Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, an actual conservative. You know our rules, no squishes on this show. The book is My American Life. It's out now. Congresswoman, you're terrific. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the book. Thank you. You got it. There you go, folks. We didn't violate our no squish rule. Actual conservatives. That's what we need. That was Lauren Boebert from Colorado. Up next, one of my all-time favorite interviews. With Major League Baseball legend, one of the best pitchers ever, Ron Guidry of the Yankees. This was a classic. Folks, Ron Guidry was an icon to me growing up, the Gator. Uh, I used to go to baseball games just to watch him pitch. So to talk to him now, uh, I think you could tell. Really, really, uh, really moved me. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy this interview. You know, this is weird. I've never, and I mean never, been nervous on radio interview everyone uh donald trump we've had david wells on i'm actually nervous for this interview and i'm not gonna fake it i really am because i I adore this guy i want to welcome to the show one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball a guy i so admired growing up the great 
Louisiana Lightning, Gator Ron Guidry. Ron Guidry, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Dan. It's uh, great to be on. Man, I am like, I told Jim during the break, it, folks, if I embarrass myself, please forgive me because I was such a huge <laughs> fan of yours growing up that I'm really like a little bit starstruck right now. So just deal with me for, for a minute. Look, I'm just an ordinary country boy, so you and I will we'll, we'll be just fine. All right, all right. So here's what I want to ask you first. So you are a Yankee, one of the best Yankee pitchers you've ever seen, Cy Young Award winner, two-time World Series champion. You were there for not just some of the most amazing baseball moments in history, but amazing sports moments. You're there for the Bucky Den home run, the shot heard around the world in Fenway, uh, the uh, Reggie Jackson, the three dingers in the in the World Series game against the Dodgers. I mean, what's the Bucky Den home run first? What's that like? I mean, I, I, Russell Earl Dent was one of my favorite players, shortstop for the Yankees. He was not known for his home run power. You and I both right. know that. Barely, if ever, hit a home run. He hits this home run that winds up winning the game later. What's that feeling like when you're there in the stadium? Well, I mean, it was just a, a it was a huge uplift for us when he hit it at the moment. And you're right, Bucky's not a home run hitter. He hadn't hit one in months. But uh, the, the the story that I tell all the time about the the, the way that that team was uh, after the All Star break when we really started to play great baseball, everybody that stepped on the field knew that all we have to do is the best job that we can do every night that we're out there, because somebody is always gonna do something spectacular. So if it's not Reggie one night, it might be Greg Nettles. If it's not Greg, it's Roy White. If it's not Roy White, it's Thurman Munson. If it's not Munson, it's Pinnell. Somebody always got a big hit in the game. And as the pitcher that started that game, you know, all I'm, all I'm thinking about is all I need to do is keep this game close because I'm either going to win it or probably lose it. So when I walk off the field, is my team going to be in a position to win? And when I say that, my goal was never to walk off the mound being one run down. That was all I wanted to do. If I was one run down, then my team was capable of scoring that one run. So, uh, you know, when Bucky stepped up in the top of the seventh inning and he popped that three-run homer, um, of course, it lifted us up, and 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 you know, it it just the heads dropped in the Boston dugout yeah. because we you know, had Gator. beaten four games in a row before, yeah. about three weeks before that, and to have that happen when everything seemed to be going their way, it was a, a, a you know, it was pretty pretty hard on them. Now they fought back and made the game closer, but you know, we were we were able to win that game. Yeah, and then that was a one-game playoff, if I remember. And yeah. that, ironically, uh, Gator, that was your 25th win that season, right? You got the win in that game, correct? I did. Yes, I did. Um, and, and you it know, was, it was, that's just how it turned out. You know, I mean, it, it, all of those wins wouldn't have mattered if we wouldn't have won that game because if we don't win that game, we don't go anywhere. Yeah, that's you know, right. And the rest of the story for that year is, you know, we win that game, we win the playoffs, we win the World Series. So, it made that year much more special because of the outcome. But if if we would have lost that game, that year wouldn't have it wouldn't have meant as much to me as it has because we won everything. And that, and that that's was right. what was important. That's right. That's that, that's right. You know, Gator, I, I you 
you know, we're talking to Ron Guidry, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. I have such fond memories. When I was a kid, I lived in Smithtown, Long Island, and my, my dad, you know, life, life was good back then. It was more innocent. We would turn on this. Remember, yeah, it was no remotes back then. You had to get up and actually right. change the channel. You and my dad channel, would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had to actually get up and get some exercise. My dad would say, Daniel, uh, get up, turn the volume up a little bit. And I'd watch WPIX 11 and you guys would be on. Right. And I got in so many fights over you, Ron. Um, my stepbrother, my parents divorced, they got me married, whatever. But my stepbrother was a huge Mets fan. And in 1985, uh-huh. years later, you come back with another monster season. An incredible uh-huh. season in 1985. I got in right. so many fights over who was better, you or Dwight Gooden, in 1985, that I might have broken a few noses and had a few broken myself just over you, Gator. I just wanted well, to throw you know, that out. Well, so you you know. laugh, and you know, I mean, I know Dwight, and Dwight's a good friend of mine, and he was a spectacular pitcher. I mean, as as a, as a pitcher that was going throwing in the big leagues, I found myself admiring what he was doing in the National League. But the, you know, the, but I laugh with with him when I talk to him. I said, you know, yeah, you you had that great year, but you know, when I had mine, I was thirty five years old, and when I won twenty two games, you were twenty four right. years old when you won your twenty four games. I was twenty seven when I won my twenty five games. So you know, because of age, <laughs> you know, my season with twenty two wins. Uh, it was, wasn't as great overall as his, but it was still special to me because everybody forgets about that season. You know, that, everybody. I, just oh, I remember about the '78 season. But oh, I, I remember that, I, that well. I well, went I to so I many games better. that year, and I watched. I must have watched you in the stadium <laughs> ten times that year. You were uh-huh. amazing. That year. what was it that year? Because you had had a number of great seasons. That was not some kind of anomaly. I mean, you'd had great right. seasons your whole career. But nineteen eighty five was special. What was it that year? You just feeling good? It was what was it? Well, extra yeah, protein you, shakes? You know, you, uh, things. Things. Like the '78 season, but let's let's go back. The '78 season, there's a lot of things that that went our way. Okay, you 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 get the lucky bounce, you get the lucky break. Uh, a guy misplays a ball when he has to. Uh, you know, some odd in the game happens when it usually doesn't happen, and and you have, whether whether you say it's good luck or not, you know, um, things just go your way. The ball bounces your way. And and then for the next few years, it doesn't go your way. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you get into another year when things go back, and, and you have the breaks because you didn't get them for the last couple of years. So yeah. um, it's just a question of, you know, like you put it all together because when you have a bad game, your team scores and offsets something that you might have done. I give up four or five runs. Well, they scored five or six runs. So you might come <laughs> right. out with a no decision or a win where you know you didn't pitch well enough, but you got something credited for. Um, yeah. When it's going bad, you give up two runs, you lose two to nothing or two to one. But yeah. the, the ball, you know, things just worked out in those seasons. But when you have to, you pitch well. When the team only scores one or two runs, you win one to nothing or two to one because you're pitching well. So yeah. that's what I'm saying about the you know whether it's luck or not. It's just things go a lot better one year compared to the very next year. Because we're, we're the, talking the, the Ron man Gidry. upstairs doesn't shine on you every year. Okay, <laughs> that's, <laughs> Some, that's right. Sometimes yeah, he my lets producer and I are laughing. 
My producer, Jim, who is a great admirer of you as well, but he's a big Mets fan, and he's uh-huh. like, watch. He said to me, Gator will admit Dwight Gooden had a really good 1984. So you, that's why we're – for those of you watching on Fox Nation, that's why me and Jim are pointing at each other. So, Gator, yeah. 1985, you have this amazing season. You had one of the most amazing lineups behind you in baseball history. We're talking to Ron Guidry, one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball. You had Mattingly. You had Winfield. You had Baylor. You had I was Jack Clark on that team too. You had Willie Randolph. I mean, you had one of the most amazing. Pagliarulo. He was like your number seven hitter, and he hit thirty home runs or something. You had an incredible team that must have helped you that year. Well, certainly. I mean, because you know when you go out, uh, you know. I mean, look. Every time you go out, you you want to pitch a shutout, but it ain't going to work that way. Okay. (laughs) So you go out knowing that even if you have a bad game, like I said, and you give up three or four runs. You're, you know your team is capable of scoring. And if they don't, then you chalk it up to a bad day. Okay? Right. So the other guy did his job a little bit better than he, I did mine. So he wins. But when you go out there, you're always going out there knowing that you have a chance to win the game. As long as you keep the, the game close, like I said about the playoff game. My job every time that I stepped out there was just keep this game close. Sure, I, I'd like to win the game because at the end of the year, if, I gotta, if I'm 10 and 10, but I should have won 25 games, they're not going to pay me on the, the should have won 25 games. Right, right, they right. They don't pay me because I won 10. That's it. So, Gator, they pay so, me on the ratings. They don't care what the ratings should have been. All they care about what the right. ratings are, Gator. Whatever, whatever they are today when we're talking, that's how you get paid. So, <laughs> you know, right. what, what I want to do, though, I took more pride in, in leaving the mound knowing that my team was in a position to win because after all if we win 100 games we're going somewhere okay yeah, so that's right that, that was what's most important sure i enjoyed winning the games but it was more important to always give my team an opportunity to win the games that i was pitching in we're talking to ron gidry louisiana lightning one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball i got a few more minutes skater i don't want to take up a lot of your time but uh, how uh, he's kind of a silly question, but you were my favorite pitcher. Don Mattingly was my favorite position player hitter. Mm-hmm. I love Donnie baseball, the hitman. Love him now. Who didn't? I got to tell you, Gator. I I've never seen anything in my life, even to this day, like Don Mattingly's 1985 season. I just haven't. Right. Every, I went to probably 20 games that year. I saw you pitch probably 10 of them. It seemed like every game I went for, he was two for five, three for five. Two doubles and a homer. The guy was just possessed that year in 1985. Right. Well, you know, one of the most asked questions is, like, people want to know who was the toughest guy I ever faced. Okay? Immediately, I always tell them George Brett. Okay? Guy's a lifetime 335 hitter. You know, hit... He hit everybody. Not just he hit me, but he hit everybody. You can't have a That's 335 right. lifetime average and not hit people. So, so Brett's right. the toughest guy that I ever had to face. I never had to face Donnie. He, he was on my team. But watching him play every day for, for all of the years that we played together, it was amazing to watch what he could do. It was like watching George Brett hit. Now, I only got to see George every time that I played against him, and if, if, if they were on TV, I got to watch a game. But watching Donnie play every day was amazing. The things that he could do. And, but, and this is the most amazing thing. He would tell you what he'd do in the dugout before he'd do it. <laughs> wow. He was you know, that he'd good, remember huh? what pitchers threw him in, in May, 
because if he faced them again in August and September, he would tell you, if he throws me the same thing, this is what I'm going to do. And I, I, <laughs> by God, he'd, half the time he'd do exactly what he'd say. Well, Gator, I'm going to tell you a quick story, and i got to run because I'm out of time. I was at an event. I'm not going to say who, but I'm at an event. It's a, it's a minor league game, and this is just a couple of years ago. A guy knows me from Fox and whatever. We're chatting, and he's an insider in baseball. He's an administrative guy, not a player. And, but he's got some experience with the Yankees, and I said to him, work ethic. I spoke to him for like three hours. We're sitting there watching this Port St. Lucie Mets game, and I said to him, work ethic-wise, I said, pitcher, work ethic. Who had the best work? He said, hands down, Ron Guidry. I said, uh, I'm telling the Gator that when I see him. You know what, Gator? I'm sure that means to you a lot, uh, but more than almost anything. That work ethic, man, that's what really well, matters. Uh, well, you know, not, it not takes just a, a pitch, lot of hard life. work, and, you know, when you're up there, you got to learn. You know, you got to be willing to change. you got to be willing to learn. you got to be willing to stay on top of everything. And if you yeah. want to be like, you know, like they kept telling me I was so small that, you know, you couldn't stand up to the strain, and I kept laughing and behind my – you know, behind my face, uh, you guys really don't know what you're talking about. But well, I'll just show you, okay? I'm not going to After say a Cy Young and, you. and two World Series, I think you showed him pretty good. Yeah, Ron Guidry, but, you know, I got to tell you, it has been but, such an honor to talk to you. I feel like my life is complete. If uh, the Lord were to take me tomorrow, I can go up with a smile on my face. Thanks well, look, for everything. Thanks for I, I making my childhood short, so special. But our mutual friend, Moon, okay, I want to oh. clarify something. I'm friends okay with him, but it's not because of him. It's because of his wife. She makes mean dessert, Tanya. So <laughs> if you ever talk to Moon again, make sure you let him know. I, I tolerate I, it, we've but got it's, it's it on tape. that I really we've, like. <laughs> we've got it on tape. Ron Guidry, you're the best. I am passing that message on. Thank you for coming on, sir. All I right, appreciate all right, time. Dan. Nice talking you to you. You got it, folks. You got it. Ron Guidry. Folks, I don't know what to tell you. I'm floating on, floating on clouds right now. I'm like, I know I got to go, Jim, but I got actual goosebumps if you're watching on Fox Nation. That interview meant more to me than I think you know. That was Ron Guidry. Up next is Judicial Watch's Tom Fitton on the Hunter Biden and Anthony Fauci ongoing fiascos. Here's Tom Fitton talking about why Dr. Fauci suddenly, air quotes, decided to retire and the latest on Hunter Biden's legal troubles. Take a listen. All right, you hear me say a lot on the show uh, that process is punishment for the left, that they've understood that for a long time, abusing the legal system and the judicial system to... uh, hijack the bureaucracy and destroy liberty and freedom that that's what they do well i got that from this guy uh, i guess the friend good man uh runs judicial watch over there tom fitton welcome to the show it's great to have you hey dan good to be with you again thank you yeah you got it yeah that's your thing you told me that a long time ago dan yeah, process yeah. is punishment man the left figured it out a long time ago we got to start figuring that out too but uh i wanted you on today to comment about dr fauci now judicial watch is one of the Finest organizations out there, folks. They've gotten to the bottom of so many scandals. By the way, involving swamp rats from both parties, which I love. But Dr. Fauci, he's retiring, Tom. And uh, kind of suspicious, the timing of that, right? Like, what's up with that? Well, I found it curious that just a day or two after we announced that the FBI at least had been investigating his uh, shady gain-of-function grant to the Wuhan Institute that they have been dishonest about and dissembling about, since uh, day one, uh, he announces his retirement. And when you look at this latest batch of documents we obtained under a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, uh, you know, you'll see, A, we 
now know that the FBI had been investigating him back in May 2020, at least the grant that is at issue, which is the gain-of-function research grant. And going back as far as 2016, his people were concerned about the gain-of-function research they were funding in China. Now, you know, compare and contrast that to Fauci testifying, oh, it's not gain-of-function research. It's clear it was gain-of-function research. That's what the records show they were worried about. And the description is gain-of-function research. And on top of that, the FBI wasn't even believing it because evidently they were investigating it. So uh, I have I have uh, no doubt that his retirement has more to do with his fear of accountability uh, than wanting to uh, spend more time with the family. Yeah, I mean, he's got a he's looking at uh, clearly licking his finger, seeing where the political winds are blowing. Twenty twenty two. Uh, even if it's not a great night for Republicans, just a good one, it seems highly likely at a minimum they'll take the House, which, as you know, you've been involved in this game a lot longer than me. Chairmanships change. The Republicans will be in charge. They'll get to do investigations themselves. And it's fairly obvious at this point that they're going to want to look into what our role was in creating this Corona COVID supervirus out there. Um, and Fauci, you know, Tom, what bothers me most about the the left's just almost reflexive defense of Fauci all the time is they tell us big government's a good thing, right? I mean, we're simplifying, but they get it. everything's big government. The government has a solution. Private sector doesn't. So we hire people in big government like Fauci. He's a public servant. He's not your orthodontist. He's not your podiatrist. He's paid by you, Tom Fitton and me, a handsome salary. And then the left protects him as if he's beyond reproach. It's not personal. I don't know the guy. I don't want to have coffee with him. He works for us. And he's made some clearly bad decisions. That's right. And supposedly he's supposed he's supposed to be an apolitical appointee, meaning, you know, he's a civil servant, more or less, uh, the highest paid civil servant in all the government. Uh, but, you know, he's supposed to be apolitical. And, you know, it's clear his decision to retire with Biden's the end of the Biden administration, at least the first term, shows that he considers himself to be a political operator. And I tell you, when you look at these documents, what's so frustrating about them is that we're being told, and, you know, with some good reason, that coronavirus, you know, the COVID-19 was was a massive issue, right? Countless deaths, yeah. uh, the destruction yeah. of economies, the destruction of livelihoods and, and, you know, and freedom that we're still suffering under. Yet we're getting information showing the FBI was looking into how it potentially developed. We're getting information showing that. Fauci and his people were sending money by the bucketfuls to China, not only the Wuhan Institute, but other groups in China that evidently were doing gain of function type research. And the media pretends it's no big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal that one could come up with when you're looking at what government did in a way that may have endangered the public health in ways we hadn't seen in, in world history before. Yeah. We're talking to Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch. Go look them up online. Get on their email list. It is worth your time. They expose a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff in Benghazi, Spygate. You know, these guys have been all over it. Tom, your thoughts on the latest uh, astonishing revelations by Dr. Deborah Burks, who amazingly put this in a book. I, I can't describe the level of stupid to do this. Uh, Dr. Deborah Burks on the COVID task force, who just admitted in her book, that they basically hid data from the Trump administration. I mean, what, what, what the hell could you be thinking to write that in a book? 
Yeah, I mean, there are admissions, in my view, of crimes uh, that ought to be investigated by, you know, uh, not that I have much faith in it, the Justice Department or inspector generals. I mean, when you yeah. manipulate data, withhold information, you know, you're engaged in a type of fraud. And we all know what would happen if it was a, a political operative or a political appointee or even a bureaucrat who was friendly uh, to the Trump administration. They'd be yeah. the target of pre-dawn raids by the FBI. And this goes for Fauci, too. I think the gain-of-function scandal needs to be subject to a criminal investigation. I know the FBI was snooping around in 2020. I suspect they haven't done much since. And same with Ms. Burks, Dr. Burks. I mean, she was lying to government officials and manipulating data. How is that not fraud in a way that would raise criminal issues? Yeah, no, it's it's shocking. Now, Tom, one of the things I always like about your organization is, again, you guys are not partisan. I mean, you know, you may have political beliefs, but you guys will go after, you know, swamp rats on either side, which I appreciate because if we're going to clean the country up, we can't just give one side a pass either. Do you have any faith that the Republican Party, if we were to take back the House, which looks likely, knock on wood, um, that there'll be investigations into Fauci? And the question I want to get to next is about Hunter, but about Hunter Biden, too. Or is this just going to be one of those things where they say, ah, you know what, it's time to move on and just let bygones be bygones? I think the Republicans are going to increase oversight since they don't really have the ability to do much else with the Senate likely to be, you know, either split closely or controlled even by the Democrats and President Biden being uh, the president. I don't see them getting much of uh, anywhere. Um, you know, my concern is that uh, the Republican leadership in the House has a demonstrated record of being not terribly interested in doing significant investigations or oversight. And so I'm concerned that we're going to have more of the same. I mean, look at the Hunter Biden issue. You know, Mueller was appointed special counsel within a minute of, of Trump being, uh, becoming president because of alleged conflicts of interest. Here we have the president's son uh, whose criminal activity has implicated the president. And Garland has gone two years without being held accountable by Republican leadership to appoint a special counsel as the rules apply. I don't believe a special counsel is a silver bullet, but at least that's the rule. And here we have the uh, Biden, excuse me, the Biden administration covering up for itself with that nary a peep uh, from the Republican leadership in either the Senate or the House. And if it were a big issue for them, you'd hear more about it. And I just don't think Republicans in the old fashioned sense of the word, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the establishment Republicans, they don't like doing investigations. They don't like scandal politics. They've never liked it. And uh, to the degree anything gets done, it's going to be done with a lot of work by individual members trying to not only overcome the objections of the Biden administration in terms of just providing documents. They couldn't get documents out of the Trump administration and they had a friendly president. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. they're going to have to overcome uh, 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 slow walking and uh, lack of interest from the Republican leadership, to put it charitably. Let me ask you a question, a kind of a bird's eye view question. You know, I'm friends with, and so are you with Dave Bossie. You know, there's people who were involved in the whole investigation into the Clinton, you know, scandals. There were some, you know, Rose Law Firm, Whitewater, Lewinsky, blah, 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 go on and on and on, right? Do you think this hesitancy by the establishment swampy Republicans, many of whom have been around for decades, comes from the fact that they got burned during the Clinton years and, 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 and at least... Politically, they did. It just nothing seemed to stick to Teflon Bill. 
Um, do, do you think there's something behind that, that that they're still feeling road rash from that and they think, oh, let's just let it go, it's not worth it? You know, I, I think that's part of it. I think the kind of the, the dirty underside of that that many people don't acknowledge is that many Republicans got nailed as a result of them looking into it. Look, the left goes after Republicans just as much harder uh, than uh, conservatives or Republicans go after them in terms of accountability. And so, uh, believe me, when, you talk, when you're talking about corruption in Washington, uh, too, too often our conservative and Republican friends think, oh, well, that's a Democrat problem. It isn't a Democrat problem. It's a bipartisan problem, and it helps explain the hesitancy of Republicans to push too hard because there are too many skeletons in Republican closets as well, I'm sure we'll find out as soon as they start looking into uh, uh, Biden. Look, Trump wanted to go after Biden for corruption, and they tried to tr- impeach him and remove him from office. What do you think <laughs> right. a Republican congressman's going to get? Uh, uh, how, how is he going to get treated or is she going to get treated? Yeah, that's such a good point. We're talking to Tom Fitton from the great group Judicial Watch. You're fantastic. No, you make great points in your organization. You guys, like I said, I can't say as if you've done this before. Like your concern is the swamp, not the Democrats or the swamp swamp. Uh, the reason I asked you that question, though, is I, we did the Republican Party get burned uh, looking into Clinton because the media operation obviously was going to protect him no matter what. I mean, you had Brock and move on dot org. Time to move on, whatever. But I think and I'd love to get your opinion on this against bird again, bird's eye view. It's a different time now. Um, we have social media now. We didn't have that then. We have websites, Breitbart, The Blaze, Conservative Review. We have organizations that are better funded and organized now. Judicial Watch and others who figured out the process. Um, you know, we have, you know, Fox News. We have Newsmax. We just have different view, blogs, podcasts. You get the point. Like, it's a different media environment with a number of different megaphones now. So any attempt to make things go away, like they tried to make the Lewinsky thing go away, like they may try with Hunter. It's just not going to work. All we got to do is put a video out of him in a sensory deprivation tank, smoking crack, and the story comes back again. It's a different time now. Yeah, there are political consequences that uh, because of the access to media and social media that the uh, uh, corrupt politicians like Biden has to face. You know, But the trick is, and I think Americans are frustrated, that it's one thing to – get the information out. It's another thing uh, for, uh, you know, the Justice Department and the other, uh, you know, agents of law enforcement to, to not do anything. You know, and I think the concern is that, you know, a negative press story is one thing, but that doesn't slow them down. I mean, it never stops Hillary, right? Uh, it, yeah. Unless there is a prosecutions and, and uh, people go to jail for the sort of misconduct and, and criminality we've seen over the last years. You know, Trump is what one of many crime victims of this, this crew. Uh, they're just going to keep on doing it. And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that's the challenge. Are we going to get some law enforcement in this town finally? And until we do, we're, we're, we're in dire straits. Yeah, it's such a good point. And that's why, you're, you know, your adage, the process is punishment. I repeat it often. I footnote you as uh, often as I can and attribute it to you. But it's such a key component. We need to get down that the left has mastered this. And it's time for us to use the process like it was meant to be used, not as punishment, but to create a law and order constitutional republic where the rules are the rules. So Tom Fitton, Judicial Watch, thank you very much for your work over there. You're awesome. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate the good work. You got it. You got it. 
Tom Fitton, folks, check out, get on that email list today. It's fantastic. Judicial Watch. They do a lot of really, really great work, and we've got to support organizations that are digging through this disgusting, putrid swamp. That was Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch, folks. He's one of the guys who uh, taught me the process is punishment. The left took care of that a long time ago. we got to replicate that strategy now. Thanks for listening to this special Sunday podcast we put together for you. You can hear me every weekday across the country on over 300 radio stations. You want to know where? Go to Bongino.com, click on Station Finder, and find out where I'm on near you. Thanks for listening. You just heard Dan Bongino.